Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The state Republican Party rejected a proposal over the weekend to pull out of the 2022 primary elections. On today's show, we'll explore why some Republicans wanted to opt out and what's ahead for the state GOP as they strategize for the midterm elections. And we learn about the state laws that provide financial aid to students who are undocumented and otherwise ineligible for federal financial aid. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. The Colorado Republican Party's Central Committee met Saturday to vote on a proposal to pull out of the 2022 primary elections. Republicans rejected the proposal, which would have kept 1.7 million unaffiliated voters from participating in the GOP primaries next year. Supporters believed opting out and going with the caucus or assembly process would ensure party purity and stop voter fraud. Colorado Sun political reporter and editor Jesse Paul attended the Saturday meeting in Pueblo. He's with us now to talk about what he heard and Republican concerns over local and state elections. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we get to what happened on Saturday, let's start with the reason for this meeting in the first place. Why were Republicans thinking about opting out of the 2022 primaries? So I think you have to go all the way back to 2016 when Colorado voters passed Proposition 108, which allowed unaffiliated voters to decide if they wanted to participate in a partisan primary. Before that, they had to decide if they wanted to affiliate with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party in order to participate in the partisan primaries. So we've only had one primary since then. I guess we've had two. We've had 2018 and 2020. Uh, that have used the Proposition 108 process. And heading into the 2022 election, Colorado Republicans have been doing a lot of soul searching as to how they can kind of reverse their fortunes over two election cycles of really bad losses. And, you know, a few hardline conservatives thought that this was the way to do it. And they raised concerns about, uh, you know, some outside spending by groups that was influencing Republican primaries, favoring maybe, uh, you know, candidates who weren't quite as conservative. And then also, you know, these election fraud uh, concerns kind of came up during this debate as well. Are you talking about with the 2020 election, that kind of fraud? Yeah, I am talking about the 2020 uh, election and concerns about fraud there. There, There's a lot of Republicans uh, who who still want to kind of relitigate what happened last year, um, specifically with the presidential election. And while there is no proof of widespread fraud that would have overturned the outcome of the presidential election that, that Joe Biden won, there's still folks, you know, who who have concerns about it, specifically with the Dominion voting machines that are used in a lot of Colorado counties. And so one of the arguments for opting out of the 2022 primaries was, hey, let's make sure we're doing this internally. We don't trust the Dominion voting software, uh, the Dominion, Dominion voting machines. We don't trust Democratic Secretary of State Jenna Griswold to carry out our elections fairly. So why don't we go this route uh, and, and, you know, just take the matters into our own hands? Well, what were some of the concerns that you heard from Republicans about this idea of opting out of the primaries? Well, there's kind of a litany of concerns that people were talking about. I mean, number one, you know, unaffiliated voters make up by far the largest voting bloc in Colorado. I think they're like 47, 45, 47% of the registered voters. 
Uh, Republicans are about 26 and Democrats are about 29%. So, you know, it, it's a huge swath of, of the voting, uh, you know, public in Colorado. So if you alienate those folks in any way, you, you can't win. And, and, and Democrats have been able to win over those voters. Republicans haven't. So some Republicans felt like any effort to, you know, to keep these folks out of the process is a bad idea. We should have, you know, candidates who, who really back them. And then, and then there were a few other arguments, one of, of which being that, you know, not only would unaffiliated voters not be able to participate in the Republican primaries, uh, Republicans wouldn't be able to participate in the Republican primaries, because instead of the primary, you would do a caucus and assembly process, which, you know, requires people to show up on one day at a specific time at a specific location. Uh, you know, if you've ever been to these things, the, the turnout's kind of spattering, people don't come if you've got a job or you can't find daycare or something like that. Uh, you know, it can be pretty difficult. So there were concerns from Republicans as well that they would be kind of diminishing the voices of their own. And then on top of that, you know, there, there was this question of cost and, you know, whether or not, you know, this group of small insiders who show up to these kind of caucus and assembly processes should be the one picking the candidates, uh, you know, if, if it was kind of unfair. Um, and, and so, you know, it, we could go on there. They were there were months of weeks of debate on this. And there were certainly a lot of concerns. Uh, surfaced by people who, who just thought this was, uh, you, you know, essentially political suicide if, if they went down this route. Well, let's turn back to this weekend's meeting in Pueblo. We know the outcome. We know state Republicans opted not to opt out of the 2022 primaries. How close was it? How close was the vote? So it's pretty interesting being there. You know, I, I know a lot of these folks. And so I was going around the room kind of polling them. And and some opponents of it thought that there would be a lot more support. Uh, the people who were backing this thought there would be a little bit of support. And it ended up being about one third of the 500 or so members of the Colorado GOP Central Committee they needed 75% of the members of the Central Committee to advance this proposition. So it was a pretty stinging defeat overall. And I think folks uh, on both sides were pretty surprised about how poorly the question actually did. It, it was fascinating to see, you know, they kind of did this like speed dating pro and con argument session before the vote was taken, where, you know, there were long lines of people on two sides of the room who went up to the microphone and, and spoke very quickly for a minute about why they thought it was a good or bad idea. And, and it was an interesting kind of division in the room. There were a lot of people who were kind of like complaining about each other, um, you, you know, dissing each other about what their point of views were. And, and, and it'll be interesting to see kind of moving forward how that split manifests in 2022 because, you know, the party leadership is really trying to pitch unity. And so we'll see, you know, if they're able to kind of overcome what happened. Well, what happens next? I mean, this doesn't necessarily settle the concerns of those who did want this to change. Uh, do you think the issue is off the table now? Will it come to another vote in the future? So there was a vote to proceed potentially with a lawsuit challenging Proposition 108. There have been some questions about the constitutionality of that ballot initiative back in 2016 that allowed unaffiliated voters to participate in partisan elections. But it's unclear, you know, how that will uh, play out and whether or not there's enough time to get something before the court and, and have a decision before the primaries next year. So, uh, you know, there won't be another vote on this particular matter. The lawsuit is really the last best hope for people who want to see this uh, happen. But I think there's kind of a, a push within the Republican Party to move on, to focus on the candidates, uh, to try and focus on the message heading into 2022. And like I said, you know, reverse two election cycles of really stinging defeats for Republicans. They've got a lot of work to do if they want to, you know, have some more power in Colorado politics again. Jesse Paul is a political reporter and editor at the Colorado Sun. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me.
In the U.S., about 2% of students enrolled in colleges and universities are undocumented. That's about half a million people. For them, one of the biggest barriers to attending and finishing college is money. They're not eligible for federal financial aid. But across the country, states have passed laws to make college more affordable for undocumented students, and Colorado is one of them. KUNC's Stephanie Daniel has more. College student Noemi Salas describes herself as a minimalist. Over Zoom, she gives a tour of her simple bedroom and the home she shares with her parents and two siblings. There's a bluish-gray accent wall with no photos, a bed, desk, and potted plant hanging from the ceiling. I have too many things in my room, and it looks crowded, and I can't concentrate. It's just hard to focus. She's really had to focus over the past two years. Until recently, the 22-year-old worked full-time as a dental assistant while taking classes part-time at Front Range Community College. Salas was born in Mexico and is a DACA recipient, also known as the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program. She doesn't qualify for federal financial aid. One of the reasons why I was working full-time is because I needed to pay for my tuition, and so I didn't think there was other options for me to pay for college. I just always felt like I had to do both. Now, at least seven states provide assistance to undocumented students, and Colorado is one of them. Under a 2019 state law, these students have access to money to help with tuition, books, and housing. Angie Pachoni heads up the Colorado Department of Higher Education. We're trying to remove the obstacles to having all of our students get the education that they need and that we need as a state for them to get. Colorado started accepting applications last October, and so far, 1,700 students have applied. But Pachoni says her office doesn't know yet how many of them have been approved. If you apply for and you received all of that aid, then you should be able to graduate. This is important because jobs in Colorado and across the country are changing. Many now require a post-secondary degree or credential. But some students of color, including Hispanics and Latinos, have a much lower college completion rate than their white peers. This is something Pachoni and her department are actively working to change. If we give them the opportunity to succeed, then they will succeed in our state and they will be taxpaying citizens and they will contribute in great ways to the economic needs of the state and to their own personal fulfillment. This option wasn't available for Marissa Molina, who grew up undocumented in Colorado. She started college before there was DACA or any financial help. She was even classified as an international student and paid nearly double in tuition and fees. I actually almost dropped out of college my sophomore year because, you know, my parents, as you can imagine, paying $10,000 a year, $11,000 a year cash was a really hard thing for my family to do. But then President Obama signed DACA in 2012, which allowed Molina to take out a private student loan her junior year. As a senior, she received enough in scholarships to cover tuition. It worked out for Molina, who is a permanent resident now. She paid off her loan, and today she is the Colorado State Director for an organization that works on immigration reform. I think the state of Colorado has also sent a message to his students about the importance that they have, that they matter, that they're seen, that we want them to succeed in our state. It's important to get the word out, she says. Students and families need to know the application is available and safe to fill out. So many folks in our community are afraid to share their status out loud, to ask for help, to ask for those resources. Today I had uh, this class for preventing medical emergencies. 
and also radiology. When I caught up with Noemi Salas last month, she was dressed in gray scrubs and had just started a dental hygienist program at Community College of Denver. We sat at a picnic table next to the dental building, and she talked about her classes. We were going over like very basic things, like taking blood pressure, um, checking pulse, like all that, all that stuff. The rigorous two-year program costs about thirty thousand dollars. Salas recently received enough scholarships and grants to cover more than two-thirds of her tuition. It was enough money that she could quit her full-time job and become a full-time student. It feels weird not to be working, but it's nice. I feel like I have more time to focus on my studies. Salas already has a new study routine. She goes into her room, shuts the door, and makes sure her desk is empty. Then she puts down her laptop and opens a textbook, The Clinical Practice of the Dental Hygienist, to the first section. And now she's ready to get to work. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In the 1800s, a leading cause of death in the U.S. and around the world was tuberculosis. Known as the White Death or consumption, the disease had no vaccine or antibiotic at the time. One treatment that was thought to be effective was relocating to parts of the country with drier air, higher elevation, and sunny skies, making Colorado the perfect location for TB patients. The influx of patients didn't just mean a higher population of people suffering from the disease, but it also drew more doctors to the state, and it led to the creation of multiple treatment facilities and resort spas. In essence, Colorado's role as the world's sanatorium actually helped put the state on the map. One of those treatment facilities, the Union Printers Home in Colorado Springs, was once the world's largest care facility for printers suffering from TB and black lung. The building first opened in 1892 and was recently sold to an investment group and five local families. But when renovation to turn the facility into a community-centered hub began, some fascinating historical documents were unearthed. Darian Zuruba is a businessman, consultant, and ad hoc documentarian for the group helping to preserve the Union Printer's home and the stories housed inside. And he joins us now. Darren, welcome to Colorado Edition. Hello, Aaron. Thanks for having me. To start, can you tell us a bit of the history around this 130-year-old, 200,000-square-foot complex? For those who have never seen it, what does the building look like and what purposes has it filled over the years? Yeah, sure. Actually, it's uh, remaining on 27 acres, and the building that everybody knows is known as the Castle on the Hill because it was built in a Renaissance style. But there's actually four large structures on the property, totaling about 200,000 square feet. The castle is about 100,000 itself. And the two behind it, uh, there's a dorm sanatorium. Both of those were built in the 1930s along with a power facility, which was a coal-powered like heating facility, laundry, wood shop. Um, so all this total, about 200,000 square feet, and three buildings in back uh, create a courtyard. And uh, the three buildings in back were built in the 1930s. So there's actually an Art Deco style and a Renaissance style building. But everybody really knows this place because of the iconic arch and because of the, the large grounds and because they know it as the castle on the hill. Now, what kinds of documents and artifacts are you finding there? 
Oh gosh. Well, when we first when we first got the place, it was really to preserve the buildings. And we knew that there were some pictures and things on the wall and there was a little museum in here. But uh, as we've cleaned the place, uh, getting it ready for whatever the next step is, we have uncovered in desks and files and closets, everything from pictures to uh, a 48 star flag, um, some military apparel from some of the residents uh, that dates back to the 40s. Uh, one of my favorite pieces we call the Holy Grail was this book that uh, basically was put together right around uh, 1892 when the place opened. So it has articles from all over the country, magazines, articles, newspapers uh, of the mention of the place and the parade and, and everything on the uh, inaugural day of uh, opening on May 12th. So the artifacts here have just uh, poured out. So this kind of took on a life of its own rather than just being a restoration adaptive reuse project. It's really now we, we feel a weight of of uh, preserving the history of all of these things. What was life like for the patients there? Uh, were all of the patients printers? And, and if so, did that make them more susceptible to tuberculosis and black lung? Yeah, originally, the, the first mention of a home for printers was actually brought up in 1857, I found out. And then it was tabled for many, many years until a couple people donated a large sum of money that kind of started the ball rolling. And when this opened, it was specifically for printers that were members of the International Typographical Union. So printing in general was uh, thought of as a pretty good and prestigious career, but it was pretty dangerous because they were dealing with carbon-based inks uh, that would into their lung, thus the black lung. Uh, they were dealing with lead. They were dealing with uh, poor working conditions, long hours, even bacteria from spittoons and things like that. So a bunch of the members wanted to, uh, wanted to put a home together. So uh, when that was realized... And the first iteration of this castle was built on a hill with nothing else around it. Uh, they describe it as snakes and scrub brush around, and we have pictures to show that. Uh, when they first opened it, it was specifically for printers of the Union. And when they would come here, when they got admitted to this facility, which I think had about 50 beds only initially, uh, when they got admitted to the facility here, basically they left their previous life behind for a while and they were left to convalesce and get better or uh, move on. And uh, one of the slogans of this that I found is it's bounty unpurchasable and it's charity without price. So what that meant was that when somebody came here, they lived here for free. They, they didn't have to work. They didn't have to worry about food, clothes, anything. So it really was uh, an interesting time for labor units to kind of take care of their own. And it wasn't until a few years later that the tuberculosis uh, crisis kind of started really coming home and they started doing more specifically for TB, uh, sanatorium tents and things like that. So there were there were games, there was croquet, there was, uh, I mean, they, they had a pretty regimented schedule with food, but all in all, it, uh, this place was a place of care and, uh, and loving kindness toward one's fellow man. We're talking with Darren Zaruba, who is working to document and preserve the Union Printer's Home in Colorado Springs. Darren, I have to ask, what drew you to be a part of this project? How did you even find out about it? I've been coming down to Colorado Springs since I was a little kid. My family was down here. Uh, we went to Memorial Park quite a bit. This uh, looks over the largest park in Colorado Springs and looks looks over downtown. I've always been fascinated by 
old buildings and structures and history. And I'd been on this property multiple times, but it was, it was just vague in the city. Everybody knew what this building was, but anybody that I'd asked or anybody that I talked to, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I know that building. I love it. I love the arch, but what is it? So it was always a care facility. And in uh, 2020, it shut down. And uh, I just happened to be uh, looking at it one day across the street at a coffee shop. And uh, it had, it started looking a little bit more abandoned. I dug into it. Um, I called some uh, affiliates with a group called All Pro Capital here. And uh, we found that it was getting ready to be under contract from an out-of-state um, out of state investor or developer. And uh, we moved fast and got it under contract. And and the first aspect of this whole thing was just to save the property. Because uh, who knows what would have happened to it, whether it would have been scraped and you lost the history or or whatever. So once we got all pro capital involved, then we also got uh, five very prominent families here in town that are philanthropists also, but uh, love history and, and really wanted to protect it and do something with it. As one of the main documentarians here, what is your goal in unearthing all of the building's hidden stories? It sounds like it's being changed into a new community center. Uh, with that in mind, how are you aiming to preserve the facility's former identity and kind of remind people of what this place used to be? When we started doing this, it really, like I said, was to preserve the buildings. But as we dived in, I mean, there's 130 years plus worth of history, uh, both of labor unions uh, the printing, typesetting, and graphic arts, uh, marketing, advertising industry, uh, members here and their stories, the architecture here, basically a history of Colorado Springs. And, and uh, as I've dived into this more, I've just, uh, I've just grown to appreciate the history of this place. And it's kind of gone into obscurity. Uh, when it, I think it was back trying to think in 18 or 1980s, uh, the International Typographical Union basically disbanded, uh, primarily because the advent of computers, typesetting had gone away. And uh, TU basically disbanded, rolled up into um, another union. And uh, since then, it was always a care facility, but this place and its history just kind of started um, moving into obscurity. And especially everybody in town, uh, I, I think the importance of this facility, the buildings and its history have uh, really been lost. Um, so thank goodness that when we dive in here, we've got so much history from pictures and articles and everything else that uh, the main goal for me is to, is to really show how important this place was, not just to Colorado Springs or Colorado, but to the nation. Uh, internationally, there were people that uh, from the union that would come here. So I guess I would say that's my first uh, goal is to protect all of the history. And then the second one is to open it up to um, to everybody to really appreciate that this is a national treasure. Historians have said that tuberculosis actually helped put Colorado on the map, changing the state's reputation from a Wild West sort of lawless land to a haven for healthy living. Do you see that? Do you think the wave of TB patients coming to the state uh, impacted Colorado for years to come? Yeah, sure. It's uh, Colorado Springs in particular actually advertised itself as a health and wellness and resort center. It's uh, the world's, uh, I've seen articles and, and advertisements that call it the world's best health and wellness resort area, not just for TV, but uh, the high, uh, dry desert climate that Colorado Springs provided 
uh, with you know a number of sunshine days per year was really an ideal place that everybody uh, wanted to come to. They they really they really capitalized on it, and uh, I know there were several facilities, care facilities, TV facilities around Colorado Springs, but. Yeah, it's, it's part of the rich history of Colorado, but especially Colorado Springs. Well, Darren, it seems like a lot of Coloradans recognize this large castle, but they don't really know much about it. If you had to pick a takeaway, what would you want people to know about the Union Printers Home? I think first and foremost that uh, this is a national treasure that we have here. For anybody that's interested in history, this was a huge part of Colorado Springs history, and it's kind of gone into obscurity. So what we're going to be looking at is uh, do some online things, uh, you know, a website and, and like an online museum showcasing some things that uh, we found here. And then whatever we do to the place, and there's there's a bunch of different options that we're looking into, whatever we do to the place, uh, it's definitely going to have that character of its history highlighted for sure. We want to open it back up to be a community asset and that people know that they have this treasure in their backyard. Darren Zaruba is a businessman and consultant working to document and preserve the Union Printers home in Colorado Springs. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, the student population at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley is nearing 25% Hispanic or Latinx, a metric that would make the university eligible for new grants as a Hispanic-serving institution. We'll explore what that designation would mean for students and for the Hispanic and Latinx communities in Greeley and Weld County. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.